find ourselves in Matthew chapter 15. I always title the message. My title today is Matthew 15. (laughs) So Matthew chapter 15. We've been going through the gospel of Matthew, been learning quite a bit. Um, Unfortunately, at this section in scripture, Jesus is well on his way in ministry and he's been doing a lot of neat things. Uh, But the religious leaders have rejected him at this point. It's kind of hard to kind of wrap your head around that. But nonetheless, uh, he didn't fit their, uh, I guess, expectation and what they were looking for in a Messiah. And so we're going to see just a kind of a a continuation of that as uh, we're going to see the Jews come over, the, the religious leaders from Israel to Galilee, to where Jesus is, and continue on in this vein. Before we do that, I wanted to talk about tradition, even before we open up in prayer, but um, tradition. What do you think a tradition is? What's a tradition? Anybody know what tradition is? Okay, so something that's maybe a ritual, a habit, something that you do seasonal, periodical, okay? So we know that there are, go ahead, John. Okay, so you might have a Thanksgiving tradition, you might have a family tradition at Christmas. I always tried to make one and then somehow the kids would ruin it. You know, my, my wife and I had four, four daughters and all right, in the morning, Sunday, uh, Christmas morning, you can open all your presents and they know we want to open them tonight and somehow they open more than one. We tried to do, okay, you can open one, but you, know, you try to establish traditions. Okay, so with that, there are there religious traditions. Yes or no? Of course, right? Things that are handed down, things that are um, given, seasonal, okay? Um, Are there good religious traditions? Yes. Absolutely, right? Some good stuff that's handed down, good rituals, good habits, good things that we can learn from generations past. The hymns are are great traditions, right? Uh, How great thou art is a, a great, even though... Angel said we sounded kind of like we were uh, cats being pulled by the tail, but <laughs> well, we'll take it. Um, bad traditions? Yes. Okay, so name me a bad tra- religious tradition. Confessing to a priest. How come that's a bad religious tradition? Because God said to confess to him. No man shall come to the Father but to me. Okay, so Jesus is our mediator. Okay, so no one will come to the Father but through Jesus. Um, is it bad to confess our sins to a person? No. Not necessarily, right? Because we have James chapter 5. Confessing your trespasses to one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So in one sense, then, we can confess. To, but to a priest, as if we needed to be absolved by a man. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the tradition of what's the role of a leader in the church then? A pastor, a priest, a a spiritual leader. What's the tradition that's good and what's the tradition that maybe is not good as it relates to a religious leader? To lead in prayer. That's good or bad? Okay. So a religious leader can lead us in prayer. Good, bad. Chuck? He's like a shepherd where he's leading the flock. Okay. Which is, you know, the, the people that are under him that go to church and, you know... So these are good things. 
Good, good. Okay. So like a shepherd, uh, hopefully as the book of Ezekiel says, he's a shepherd after God's own heart, right? Where I'm going to raise up shepherds after my heart. And, and I think God's heart was to, to care and love the people, right? The sheep, recognizing as we see Jesus all the time, he was moved with compassion because he looked upon the people as sheep without a shepherd. Nobody was leading them. Nobody was guiding them. Nobody was ushering them in the right path, in the right direction. And Jesus hurt because of that. All right, that's good. Who else? Somebody had their hand up. I think something that's bad is that people have a tendency to take their focus off of the Lord and put it on to the... Okay. So we have these rock star leaders yeah. today for some reason, right? These, these woo, ascended masters as if, honestly, as if what? They're closer to God? As if they're better than the average pew sitter? Right? And that's not really healthy. Why? Because the reality is we're all in this ship together, aren't we? We all have struggles. We all have things that we really go through. We have sin to confess, right? And so we're all in this together. There, there's, it's not like a, a leader or a, a pastor or a priest um, is any closer than any Christian that has the Holy Spirit dwelling within their heart, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit is our ultimate leader, teacher, guide, right? And so we got to be careful with that. And I think a lot of a lot of the bad traditions are maybe the titles that we give to some of these leaders. Um, my dad passed away and he was attending a Catholic church and the, the, the priest uh, told me, okay, you can call me Father, what was his name? I forgot, what his name. let's say his father, Daniel or something. I said, all right, Daniel, my name's Johnny. Yeah, I'm a senior pastor, so you can call me Johnny <laughs> and I'll call you Daniel or whatever his name was. And that's how we're going to do that. I got one father, he's right here laying in, this coffin, and I got a heavenly father that I refer to as father, and you know, so the titles sometimes, and so, but we have to be careful because there are systems where people feel comfortable referring to their leaders in a certain way, and so I wouldn't be disrespectful in that setting, but at the same time, if I'm having a one-on-one conversation with this person, calm down. I remember Chuck Smith saying that, um, this man called, asked him to call him the Holy Right Reverend. Some, like it had so many just titles. And he was like, whoa, that's, I, I don't think we should have this conversation. I shouldn't be talking to somebody so holy or something, you know. I don't know. And so I think, again, some of those traditions, I think they come from at times a good place, but I think we need to be careful. The, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, who can kind of break that down for me? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? The deeds of the Nicolaitans, mentioned twice in the book of Revelations, chapters 2 and 3. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, first, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. Bad thing. What, what is We're going to tell you. Jeff's going to break it down for you right now. <laughs> Jeff, you know the deeds of the Nicola- Nicolaitans? Um, no. no? Brian? The laity is like the regular people. Yep, the people. And Nico is like the dominant. Mm-hmm. To rule over. So you take that one Greek word, Nicolaitans, and it's to rule over the laity, the people. So there was a group of people that had titles. And Jesus says, this I have uh, for you, a positive, 
I think it's Church of Ephesus and the Church of, I forgot what, to, what other church in the, the seven churches in the book of Revelations 2 and 3. But he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. So God doesn't want a hierarchy, a structure. He does raise up leaders. He does raise up teachers to teach. He does raise up shepherds to disciple and to shepherd the flock. But we have to be very careful with our eyes on a person because, as Angie said, we can um, begin to almost worship that person. And then they fall and we're devastated. Oh my gosh, he was a human like us. Ah. And then all of a sudden people just, they lose it, right? And so we pray for our leaders and, and we thank God for them, but we gotta be careful. God doesn't like that structure. We're the body of Christ and we've all been given different gifts. Any other traditions you guys can think of? What about Easter traditions, Christmas traditions, holiday traditions, good, bad? Okay, so Halloween traditions, right? Right. We have all these traditions. All right, so how would we discern between what's good and bad? How would we know a good tradition or a bad tradition? Filter of the word, right? Filter of the word. The word's going to filter out and show us something that's good or bad. Um, is it always bad to do something that had a bad beginning? I'm going to say no because I think we do a lot of things that had a bad beginning. Did I say that right? Is it always bad to do something that had a bad beginning? I'm going to say no because I think we do a lot of things that had its roots in Babylon, Babylonian religion. And I think we don't. It, it's so far removed from that today that we don't even know some of the similarities. There's a lot of things we wouldn't do. Uh, Easter is actually Ishtar. It's, it's given to the god of uh, Babylon way back. And uh, so we, we have the celebration of the resurrection. It's, it's the resurrection that we're, as Christians, hopefully celebrating. Don't pick it on that day. Well, you know, just... Yeah, I don't know. I think those got introduced uh, later on, and I, I, they had something to do with fertility and bunnies being prolific. And uh, if you look at the history, it's interesting. I, I've seen it all before. I just doesn't. All right, so let's go ahead and get in the scriptures. We're gonna kind of see Jesus and his perspective on traditions, and as we go through the chapter, we'll be able to just uh, see the heart of God. But we we see uh, Jesus take a turn in his ministry here where the religious leaders have already rejected him and he's beginning to really focus in on ministering to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask your blessing upon this time. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us these instructions, that you speak through your word and we just pray, Father, that you would um, speak to us even now in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so this is Matthew chapter 15. Then the scribes, and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees are mentioned a lot, but they didn't really do a lot uh, outside of coming against Jesus, if you will. Uh, scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So now these are a different group of religious leaders. They're coming from Jerusalem. And they're coming to Galilee where Jesus is to confront or approach or ask him questions. And so you see just a change here taking place. 
No longer are they just crossing paths, but they're coming now. Hey, hey, there's an itinerant rabbi, this preacher guy, this guy going around in the synagogues and he's teaching. He's got a multitude following him. We hear there's healings and things, but we hear good things and bad things. Remember, the religious leaders have already rejected Jesus. In the last chapter, they said that they set up a guy in the synagogue to trap him so that they would have something. The word was to accuse him. And then, of course, Jesus healed the guy with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And that was the big problem they had, that he healed on the Sabbath. And then it says they wanted to destroy him. And so now you have this group, this official group from Jerusalem coming. And notice their, their contention. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, these guys are just dirty slobs, huh? No, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. There was a ritual that was given in addition to uh, cleanliness and all of this stuff. So they would take a half eggshell full of water. This is, they're already clean, they're bathed. But just before they would eat, ceremonially, they would hold their hands up like this and somebody would uh, put half an eggshell a cup, if you will, of, of water. It would run down their hand. Then they would wash it with this hand. Then they would do this hand. And then they would hold it here and do the same thing. And they'd wash it here and they wash it here. And now, ceremonially, they're ready to eat because they've been purified just in case they come in contact with anything that defiled them prior to eating because they were going to ingest it. And the thought was if they are dirty, undefiled, then they're ingesting something and it's going to make them unclean. And so it was really just formalism. It was a tradition. It was, it was something that had been established. And so they're questioning, your, your disciples are eating bread and they don't, they don't even wash the proper way. Verse three, and he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received, from me as a gift to God. And so what Jesus is referring to is something in the Gospel of Mark that has a specific name. Anybody know the C name for what this practice was? Anybody? Brian? Corbin. So Corbin met dedicated to God. And so what they found was a loophole in the law. So now you have the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments. Right? Number what? Five, six? Thou shalt honor your mother and father, right? Honor, to honor your parents. And what they did was they said, all right, check it out. If you guys do this thing called Corbin, you could dedicate something to God, like let's say your paycheck. And then, and then you could just figure it out later what you want to do with it selfishly. But if you say that it was Corbin, it was dedicated to God. And if your parents are starving to death and they have nothing to eat and you have money to feed them, you can say, hey, 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 my paycheck is Corbin. It's dedicated to God. So, mm, sorry, mom and dad. I guess you're not going to be able to live. And so they found this loophole around the very commandments of God. And what they did was, Jesus is saying, it's not that you took tradition and you matched it to the word of God. You took tradition and you superseded it over the word of God. And so now these things that are handed down, handed down, handed down, handed down, are more important than the very words that came out of God's mouth in the law. Then, verse 6, 
he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrite. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so Jesus isn't saying tradition is bad if it's good tradition. Jesus isn't saying tradition is good. He's just saying you can't take any tradition and elevate it above the word of God. So last week I was in the Bible college class that I teach. And one of the students is taking um, systematic theology. And he's in the second semester. So I, I like asking like the kids questions, the students questions. I said, so, so what are you learning? And he broke it down. He said, man, there's three kinds of societies. And he talked about a shame-based culture. We are an autonomous culture. And then there's another one. I forgot what name it, it was given. Uh, a rural culture. I forgot what that was. Like Islam and all those. But... Um, a shame-based culture. A shame-based culture is a culture where, and this is a story he told me. He's from Samoa. So he said, so in my country, my little island, there was a guy that raped a girl because it's a shame-based culture. The parents of the girl made the guy marry, made the girl marry the guy who raped her because we can't bring shame to the elders. You've elevated the tradition of your culture above the very word of God. That poor girl has to live the rest of her life in that type of culture. Just imagine what she is, feels like inside. Imagine the pain that she's going through her whole life, right? Because they've elevated the, the tradition above the word of God. And so the, a lot of Asian cultures are shame-based. Uh, Philippine, Filipino cultures are shame-based. Samoan, I, I didn't know Samoans were, but he told me last week that he was, and he shared that story with me. And so we line up everything through the filter of the word, and we let the word shed light on anything that we do, which is right or wrong. So the best working definition of faith that I've ever heard is obedience to God's word, regardless of consequences or circumstances. And that comes, I think, from Josh McDowell. Um, so I'm going to obey God's word no matter what is, potentially might happen. So my family might disown me. Um, my culture might reject me. Um, you know, it may be difficult in life. But no matter what potentially might happen, I'm going to elevate God and his word above everything. And no matter what is happening. So that is the definition of faith. And we, without faith, the Bible says, we cannot please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we need to be careful in our culture of things that would trump, supersede, overrule God's word. There's a lot of work politics. There's a lot of family dynamic politics. And the politics is, is just a good kind of, uh, to me, synonym for traditions. A lot of it is political in, this, in, the, in, the, in the world of, that we live in, but really it's a lot of the traditions that have been established. Uh, no, we don't talk about those things, or no, we don't do those types of things, or, or you know, in the name of what? In the name of you did something wrong and it needs to be brought to you? Last week we studied John the Baptist was beheaded. He was first thrown in prison. Why was John the Baptist thrown in prison? Because he called Herod out that he had took his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, right? and married her, 
and divorced his wife. She had to divorce her husband and they did this thing. And so he got thrown in prison. What did John Baptist say? I don't care what might happen to me and I don't care what's happening, but bro, that's wrong. And he called him on it and he ended up dying for it. Do you think he's sorry in heaven for dying, for being righteous for the cause of Christ? No, rewarded handsomely, I'm sure, right? The greatest prophet that ever lived, Jesus said of John the Baptist. And then he said, and then we would be greater. Figure that out. Verse 10, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Now in the context, we need to be careful. Jesus is speaking specifically of food. So we're not going to say that we can ingest anything we want. We can take in anything we want with our eyes because it's only what comes out of our mouth that defiles, not what comes in. That's not the context of what Jesus is saying. Sin on every level defiles. Okay? But Jesus is saying in the context of food, because they're saying, because they didn't ceremonially go through the ritual of washing correctly, then they're going to eat food and it's going to go inside of them and that's going to corrupt them and defile them. Jesus is saying it's not what comes out, goes in, but that which comes out. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Do you think Jesus cared that the religious leaders were offended? They had rejected him. And it's kind of hard from us because the Bible is written from a perspective that we can read it and understand it. And I don't think, I think there is, I, I, I have to say, there's a lot that is going on with God that we don't understand. Psalm chapter two reads that God will laugh at the powers, the kings of the earth, who think they're gonna set themselves and fight against God and win Bible says that God laughs like, really? Really? Me who spoke and the world leapt into existence? Really? Wow. So I think it's written from that perspective to show us that we need to be careful. Jesus, did he care that they were offended in the sense that he cares about humanity? Huh? I could definitely say Jesus cares about people and his heart breaks for sin and his heart breaks for the loss. But does he care that they were offended? They weren't getting it otherwise. So maybe he needs to shake them up because nobody talked to the religious leaders like Jesus did. They were all afraid to. And Jesus brought it, boom, straight between the eyes. I'm gonna shoot you straight. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And so Jesus is saying, these guys are blind leaders leading blind people. I need to shake them up. Maybe I won't get their attention, but I sure will get the people that are following them attention so that they can know some truth because they're blind leading blind. And I want to wake them up. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. Verse 15, (laughs) Jesus didn't share a parable. Peter's like, oh, sounds like a riddle. I don't get it. Okay, uh, uh, Jesus, I guess you were talking about parables uh, two chapters ago, so maybe this is a parable too. Verse 16, so Jesus said, are you also 
without understanding. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Imagine that Jesus went there. Jesus went there. Bro, you, you eat food and food goes out. I mean, how, come on, it's just, it's just natural. Everyone does that daily, bro. Do you not yet understand whatever enters the mouth? Uh, verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile a man. And so Jesus concludes by letting us know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And whatever's coming out of our mouth is in our heart. What's in our heart? Deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? I, the Lord, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, I, the Lord, test the hearts. I test the minds to give to him according to his ways. And so our heart is incurable and we can't revive it. We can't fix it. We can't mend it. We can't do anything we need a new heart, so God creates a new heart for us when we come to him. Remember what David prayed? Lord, create in me a new heart. Is that what he says? Mm-hmm. Create in me a yeah. clean heart, new heart. It's a new heart that he, he requested in one of his psalms. He needed a new heart. He realized he was far from God. And I mean, all of us should know that. All of us should realize, man, when sometimes the things I'm saying and what's coming out of my mouth is just... Lord, that's wicked. It's a wicked heart. And so we need God. We need to be desperate for God. We need to look to God. And I don't think anybody should be surprised by how wicked our hearts can be. Jesus turns the corner, 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, so now he's going, he's going to, out of his way, to Gentile territory. And behold, a woman of Canaan, So not just a Gentile, but a Canaanite. What were the Canaanites to the nation of Israel? Enemies. Jesus is going out of his way to Tyre and Sidon to a Canaanite woman. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. Son of David. She knows more of who Jesus is than the greatest religious leaders of Jesus' time. This enemy of the nation of Israel. She gives him his title, son of David. You're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. But look at how desperate she is. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, not a word. Huh, that's interesting. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. So the disciples are bothered by her. Jesus is not saying a word to her, verse 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So first he doesn't answer her, first strike. Second strike, then he lets her know, I I, I came from the nation of Israel. Okay, salvation is to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So that's what he's doing, he's setting it up. Verse 25, then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dog. Strike three. Okay, two words for dog. One is 
the dog, the mangy mutt, horrible, vicious dogs that ran the streets that were, they, they were referred to as Gentiles. Gentiles were dogs. And those were the ugly, mangy dogs that were out there. That's not the word he uses. He uses little puppy. It's, it's a little in, more endearing, but it's still an insult, is it not? It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Notice her response, verse 27. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Above and beyond, Jesus goes. Did she ask, will you heal my daughter immediately? No. She just said, come and see my daughter. She's severely demon possessed. Jesus is at your word. She's healed right now. Go home to her. Okay. What was, what is this interaction? Jesus is drawing out of this woman. He knows what's in the woman. He is doing in the presence of the disciples, in the presence of those who had just heard about these religious leaders coming from Jerusalem. Look at Israel. You guys don't even have faith like this Gentile woman. Watch me draw it out of her. Watch me show you an example of what faith looks like. She wouldn't take no for an answer. She requested, she requested, she requested. And so that's persistency in prayer for us. We pray one time. Well, I guess God didn't want it for me. You know, I prayed. I prayed that Tuesday last week and, you know, nothing really happened. And so, you know, God is like, guys, persist with me in prayer. Let's commune. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. Okay? And so that's what she definitely models for us. Verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted to the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitudes marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. I don't know how Jesus was able to do it, but one of the most difficult ministries to give glory to God is a healing ministry. And that's why we very rarely see it. My opinion. That's why we very rarely see it. Because people will elevate the person instead of the God that has given the gift to the person. And unfortunately, it's a pretty awesome gift that a lot of people, I just don't think they can handle it. I've been in healing services. I have been healed by somebody who had the gift of healing. We've laid hands on people and we've seen them healed. But as far as just somebody commanding that at their will, that's not really how the gifts work anyways. It's when God wills. Pastor Chuck Smith had prayed for a lady who was in a wheelchair at one of the services and she came forward and the Lord put it on his heart. Woman, stand, you're healed. And he pulled her up and she walked. And she, she was in a wheelchair. I don't know what was wrong with her legs. And then the next day, or the next service, um, another woman in a wheelchair was there. And Chuck Jr. said, Dad, Dad, just like you did last week, just have her get up. And, and he's like, son, son, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, ain't, this ain't mine. This is God. God put that on my heart to you know, pray for her. And she was healed. That ain't my thing. That's God's thing. And very few can handle it that graciously and that well. You know, It's something that we need to be careful of. But notice... Jesus did all this and they glorified the God of Israel. That's very important for us to see because God uses us and immediately we want to take credit. Wow, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I put, a, I put together a pretty cool little study today. Yeah, you don't know how long I prayed on this one. Yeah, I studied for like three months. You know, I narrowed it down and really, you know, got it going on. You know, we just, shut up. You're reading the Bible. Be quiet. You know, calm down. Verse 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude. We said compassion last week was the ability to feel whatever others are going through. And Jesus gladly felt the pain of others because they have now continued with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Now remember last week, he fed the 5,000. Because of that, and because of the disciples' reaction right here, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Many people think that this is the same miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 because they don't believe that the disciples could be that stupid to ask that question. But in the context, we recognize this isn't the same miracle. There's a lot of differences in this feeding of the 4,000, not the 5,000. But the reason why they're asking this question is because he's in the region of the Gentiles. And he did the feeding of the 5,000 in the region of Israel, to God's kids, if you will, to the nation of Israel, the children of God, right? Children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now they're here, but what is Jesus doing as he walks with his disciples? He's expanding their understanding of what God is all about. In my opinion, he's just blowing their mind over and over. Whoa. Remember the sea? When, the, when he walked on the water, they was like, who is this who even calms the storm? They, they needed to see Jesus in all of these different settings so that they can have this understanding. Man, he's bigger than anything we know. Yeah, he fed the 5,000 nation of Israel. Could he do this too? No, he's not going to want to do that. It goes on, verse 34. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to the disciples, uh, to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Um, So the other one was 12 baskets full. There were 12 disciples. So each one got to take home a little lunch bag. Remember that last time they fed the 5,000? Okay. Two different words in the Greek for baskets. This speaks of a big old, like a laundry basket, a big old wicker basket. So there's actually more left over with the seven big baskets than there are than the 12 little lunch pills, baskets, if you will. So that's just interesting. And again, that's another way that we know that these two miracles are different because he uses two different words for basket. So they all ate, were filled, took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. Now, verse 38, now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and he sent the multitudes away, got into a boat, and came to the region of Magdala. The best way we know that these two miracles took place, because in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew, (coughs) Jesus tells them, don't you remember that I the time that I fed the 5,000 and you took up 12 little baskets? And the time that I fed the 4,000 and you took up seven big baskets? You know, so he, Jesus himself, refers to both of these as separate miracles. (coughs) And the feeding of the multitudes, I think it starts with compassion, 
It starts with us being willing to be vulnerable and to be able to sit in someone's pain. And I think that's an important thing that we, we struggle doing. I think, I was talking to a guy today he, uh, at work, and he's, um, he's from Texas. We're done, but I'm going to wrap up here. He's from Texas, and I told him, what do you think the solution to all these school shootings is? He goes, oh, man, you're not going to want to hear my, 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 my answer. I'm from Texas, you know. I don't believe in, uh, you know, taking guns away and all this stuff. And I said, no, 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 just tell me what the solution is. And ultimately, we landed on, I said, I think it's the church's fault. I think it's the church's fault. Because the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of people that want to hear the truth and the love of God, but we have to proclaim it whether they want to hear it or not. And I think before we can tell somebody the truth of the gospel, we got to sit in their pain so that they can see that we really do care. And I don't think many Christians are willing to do that. Not a lot of Christians are willing to sit with people long enough to listen to them, to let them talk, and then to say, hey, I have an answer. I have a solution, and his name is Jesus. Because the answer to every question is Jesus, right? But Jesus had compassion on the people, and he was able to do all these wonderful things because he cared. And I think, um, I don't know who said it, but they said, people are not gonna care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think we, we, we think we need to impress people with our knowledge or with how many verses we can quote or I think the minute we become Christians, we have everything we need to be used by God because it's not us, it's him, right? First Corinthians chapter one says, and you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the base things, to put to nothing the things that are, and on and on and on it goes. Why? So that no flesh would glory in his presence. To God be the glory. Jesus was able to glorify the Father after all of these miracles. And I think we're just living in a whole different world. And this idea, we started with this idea of rock star pastors and ministers and leaders and missionaries and all these guys that you know, are trying to make a name for themselves. Guys, that's not what it's about. If there's a shining star in the sky, we want it to be Jesus. If there's something we're pointing to, we want it to be Jesus. If there's a kingdom to build, we want it to be Jesus's. It's his kingdom, it's his name, it's his um, adoration and worship. And we need to be, I think, like, like Daniel in the Old Testament. Somebody who, king after king after king after king. And it looked like at times in Daniel's life, he was shelved. I just love this picture of Daniel in the Old Testament. He was shelved. And a new king would come on, and then they'd hear, hey, there's a guy that interprets dreams. Oh, go get him. And then they pull, God would pull Daniel off the shelf again and say, hey, Daniel, I'm gonna raise you up. I'm gonna use you in this next kingdom as well. And he would give glory to God. And then he'd go off the scene, and then God would bring him back. And so it's all about God and when God wants to use us and what God wants to do through us as opposed to us and what we think we need.